Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Goodness gracious, it's time again for Dark Poutine. Welcome back. I'm Mike Brown, your creator and host with me, guest hosting again, is my good friend Matthew. Thanks for coming to help out once again, Matthew. When does it become not a guest host? <laughs> I'm scared of making anybody a permanent co-host anymore. I might drop off. Well, who knows what's going to happen, <laughs> but uh, I really appreciate you showing up and for bringing us lunch. You brought me some pizza. Yeah, it was mediocre, wasn't it? No, it was good. Okay. I enjoyed it. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double, and in the Naimo bar, it's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's dark poutine. Could be. Advertising people. few acts more depraved, shocking, and downright evil than the ones perpetrated in the episode that follows. The details and circumstances of this case are disturbing as it involves the murders of two innocent children. On the evening of Christmas Day in 2017, upon gaining access to an Oak Bay, British Columbia apartment, police discovered a bloody crime scene. In the suite were the bodies of six-year-old Chloe Berry and her four-year-old sister, Aubrey. They had been murdered in their beds. First responders also discovered Andrew Berry, Chloe and Aubrey's father, naked, seriously injured and bleeding in the bathtub of the apartment. He had penetrating injuries to his left chest and throat. First responders took Andrew by ambulance to Victoria General Hospital for treatment. He'd eventually have a rather tall tale to tell about what had taken place that day. This is Dark Poutine episode 169, Worst Case Scenario, The Murders of Chloe and Aubrey Berry. Oak Bay is a suburb of Victoria, the capital of British Columbia, on Vancouver Island, and has a population of just over 18,000 residents. According to the first page of a Google search for the city, quote, Affluent Oak Bay is popular for its tree-lined namesake avenue filled with smart boutiques and art galleries, fancy delis, and lively cafes. 
Casual spots serving brunch and fish and chips buzz with locals in nearby Estvan village. A short stroll away, Willows Beach has calm waters for kayaking and paddleboarding while yachts pack Oak Bay Marina. A coastal drive passes the Victoria Golf Club and ritzy uplands area. Such horrific things don't happen frequently in Oak Bay. Only once before in recent history has there been anything like what happened to Chloe and Aubrey. In 2007, a man named Peter Lee broke into his estranged family's King George Terrace home and fatally stabbed his wife, their six-year-old son, and his in-laws before killing himself. Oak Bay police were tight-lipped at first about the details of what had gone on in Suite 103 at 1400 Beach Drive, but as the victims were two little girls and apparently their father, local media outlets picked up on the story right away. Here's some global news audio from a report filed soon after the murders. Included are clips of Oak Bay residents expressing their thoughts and feelings about what had happened. Oak Bay is known for its waterfront view, but the view across from the marina is startling. Crime scene tape and investigators going in and out of an older three-story apartment building. This building has been very quiet and uh, we have young families and we have uh, retirees in here and uh, there's never ever been any problem. But there was on Christmas Day, 5 p.m., police were called to Harrow Apartments by whom they won't say. Inside a ground floor suite, they found the bodies of two children, ages four and six, and a man with injuries. Neighbors kept out of their homes for hours. It was a shock. There were two ambulances, there were five police cars and two fire trucks, and we thought this is very odd. And certainly would not allow us into the building, so we had to go to a friend's and spend a few hours until uh, such time that we were allowed to be escorted into the building after passing two checkpoints. Police say the public is not at risk. They're not looking for any suspects. Homicides in Oak Bay are rare, and when they do happen, they are usually domestic. Multiple police agencies are involved in the Christmas Day tragedy. Late Tuesday afternoon, the bodies were removed from the suite. Investigators expect to be on scene all week. Bit of shock and sadness because it's Christmas, and we're supposed to be happy and blessed, and we're not. To hear that this has happened right in my neighborhood um, is kind of scary. It was Sarah Cotton, Chloe and Aubrey's mom, who had initially alerted the police. She and Andrew had separated in 2013, and Andrew had the girls overnight for Christmas morning, and he was supposed to bring them back that afternoon. When Andrew and the girls did not appear at the appointed time, Sarah and Andrew Berry's mom went to Andrew's place to see if anyone was home. At around 2 p.m. that day, a neighbor saw two women knocking on the windows of Andrew Berry's apartment. Sarah later said that she never looked into the windows because if the girls were home, she would have heard them. Thinking that the girls and Andrew might be at the park nearby, Sarah and Andrew's mom went to look for them there. There was no sign of Chloe, Aubrey, or Andrew. Sarah became concerned after repeated attempts to reach out to Andrew and getting no response, so she finally went into the Oak Bay Police Department at around 4.15 p.m. to beg them to do a welfare check on Andrew and the girls at his apartment. Constable Yulanowski, the first officer on the scene, knocked on Andrew's door, but there was no answer. He called out in a loud voice, and again there was no answer. The officer called Andrew's cell phone and could hear Andrew's ringtone and the phone buzzing from inside the apartment, but still otherwise silence. 
Yelanowski retrieved a key from the building superintendent and entered the suite at around 6 p.m. to a horrific scene. There was blood everywhere. Bloody footprints were all over the hardwood floor that was littered with toys and kids' clothing, detritus from an early Christmas morning. The footprints, made by bloody stocking feet, led past the Christmas tree and went from room to room. In one bedroom, in her bed, was six-year-old Chloe. Cast-off blood spatter with her DNA was found on the wall above her body. There was a large pool of blood under her body and it had soaked into the bed. In the other bedroom in the suite lay four-year-old Aubrey. Blood spatter with her DNA was found on the floor, dresser, and wall next to her body. A large pool of blood was located on the bed beneath her body as well as on the bedding of the bed. According to court documents, quote, Aubrey was stabbed 32 times. The stab wounds cut her spinal cord, punctured her lung, cut through her rib, and caused severe blood loss. She had stab wounds on her front and her back that occurred both before and after death. This means that her attacker had to turn Aubrey over at least twice during the assault on her. The attack on the older girl had been no less brutal. A small, broken pink baseball bat with her name inscribed on it was found near Chloe's head and tangled in her hair. Again from court documents, quote, Chloe was struck in the head and stabbed 26 times. The object used to strike her on the head was consistent with the bat found tangled in her hair. She was struck at least once, hard enough to fracture her skull. The strike could have caused her death on its own. It was determined that Chloe was struck in the head before her death and before some of the stab wounds were inflicted. Chloe had no defensive wounds, which is consistent with her being struck with the bat before she was stabbed. The little girl was stabbed on her front and back before and after death. This means that her attacker had to turn Chloe over at least twice during the course of his assault. The stabbings severed her spinal cord, two of her ribs, and punctured her lung, amongst other wounds. Both bodies were showing signs of rigor mortis when police discovered them. They'd been dead for some time. A knife that had been taken from the kitchen was found on the floor next to the bed where Aubrey's body lay. An autopsy performed later determined that the knife was consistent with the stab wounds on both Chloe and Aubrey. The bloody footprints going from room to room told a tale of the murderer having possibly been back and forth a number of times between the rooms the girls had been found in. The attacks had taken some time. Andrew was found by police and first responders in the bathtub of his suite. He was naked, wet, and covered in blood from multiple stab wounds. His blood-soaked clothing was also found in the bathroom. Andrew was barely conscious. He struggled to talk, but thanks to the injuries to his neck, could only manage a few words. He said things like, Kill me, and leave me alone. Later at the hospital, he said the words, Kill me, to a nurse and his sister. Andrew was given a pen and a piece of paper to write out his responses. From a Global News article, quote, he responded to his sister, an RCMP officer, in a handwritten note saying, I don't remember what I did, but I tried suicide. I left a note on the table. I don't know why my eye is black. Barry ends the note saying, his ex-wife, quote, treated me so like I didn't matter. Mom was joining in. The lies created to get their way was absurd and I couldn't stand up to them, end quote. 
According to a Global TV news report, Andrew's sister, the RCMP officer, indicated some strong feelings about what had happened, telling Andrew, I can't even touch you right now. Barry later complained that his sister had not hugged him at that moment. From Global News, his sister then wrote him a note asking whether there was something that she needed to know. Andrew wrote his sister a reply, I love you, I'm sorry. Sorry, he said he was sorry. He also did not deny murdering his daughters in that moment. He only indicated that he could not remember what had happened, but again, he didn't deny it. The injuries, it appeared, had all been at Andrew's own hand. The locations of them on his left side were consistent with those of a right-handed person injuring himself. From court documents, all of his injuries were in areas that he could reach himself, on the left side of his chest, on the front side of his neck. The doctor who repaired the damage to Andrew's neck and chest noted that the chest wounds were all superficial and consistent with having been caused by a sharp object like a knife. The neck wounds consisted of several shallow lacerations and one deeper laceration that severed the cartilage supporting Andrew's trachea. This is why he couldn't talk. Vancouver Island Integrated Major Crime Unit was tasked to investigate the murders. As the evidence was gathered, it pointed strongly right at Andrew Barry. The question on everybody's mind was, had 43-year-old Andrew Barry murdered his little girls, and if so, why? Many people who knew them said that Chloe and Aubrey loved their father and that Andrew was a loving father toward them. But there had definitely been issues, according to some others. There had been a lot of trouble between Sarah and Andrew over the years, much of it involving the girls. Andrew hated Sarah and, according to court documents, told several people, quote, she had taken intentional steps to, in his words, screw him over and inflict maximum damage on him personally and financially, end quote. In September of 2013, the year of their separation, child protection social workers for the Ministry of Children and Family Development, MCFD, were called in to investigate allegations of child abuse leveled against Andrew by Sarah. Andrew was arrested and after his release he was told he could not see his girls nor Sarah pending a thorough investigation. Andrew was livid and claimed to be in disbelief that anyone, especially Sarah, would say that he'd hurt his girls. No charges were brought against Andrew at the time as the allegations were deemed, quote, unfounded. Andrew was allowed to resume seeing the girls regularly. In October 2015, Sarah called the ministry again. This time, she said that there had been, quote, possible inappropriate touching between Andrew and the youngest girl, Aubrey, who was only two at the time. This time, both the ministry and Oak Bay police were investigating, during which Andrew was allowed only supervised visits with Chloe and Aubrey, which he was angry about, denying he'd done anything at all. In November of that year, a doctor also reported that there had been possible inappropriate touching between Aubrey and her father. Again, the investigation by the ministry and police had deemed the allegations were unfounded, and once again, no charges were filed against Andrew. From a Global News article, quote, In January 2016, Victoria General Hospital contacted the ministry about a bruise on Aubrey's head from an indoor playground while she was under Andrew Barry's supervision. Barry was once again prohibited from having contact with his children unless supervised while the ministry investigated the incident which happened while the second allegation of inappropriate touching was also being investigated. There was no proof of any wrongdoing, and once again, no charges were filed in that incident. Andrew pursued more time with the girls, and in May of 2017, Andrew Berry was awarded 40% custody of Chloe and Aubrey. 
Global News posted a report indicating some of the judge's findings. Here's some audio of that report. A glimpse of Cotton's struggle to protect her daughters can be seen in the pages of a custody judgment made this past spring. Her charge that Barry had threatened to blow up the house in an early fight over money. A concern that he had been touching one of the girls inappropriately. Ultimately, Barry was warned by the Ministry of Children and Family Development over the touching issue. And Madam Justice Gray eventually found the father is a loving father who has much to offer his daughters. It's in the best interest of the girls to have significant parenting time with the father. That was the legal ruling that meant the girls would be with him this Christmas. Chloe and Aubrey were, I mean, like little girls, really silly, you know, and lots of laughs, and we always had a lot of kind of jokey, playful time with them. Though they'd been figures in our province's legal system for much of their lives, for Chloe and Aubrey, the system was not able to protect them. Paul Johnson, Global News. Andrew Barry was also struggling financially. From court documents, quote, Andrew had been employed by BC Ferries for 15 years until he quit in May 2017. He was unemployed from that time. He cashed in part of his pension and spent a large part of it gambling. By the end of 2017, Andrew was without financial resources. His bank accounts were overdrawn and he had no credit. He believed he had spent all of his pension money. Andrew had no job prospects. He could not pay his rent. He could not buy much food, and in early December 2017, the hydro to his suite was cut off because he failed to pay the bills for many months. Based upon texts and emails that he exchanged with his sister, Andrew knew that his precarious situation meant that once he returned the children to Sarah on Christmas Day, as he was required to do under the court order in their family matter, the children would not return at least until his hydro was reconnected. He had no money to do that. At some time in the morning of December 25th, Andrew wrote a suicide note addressed to his sister. He reiterated his complaints about Sarah, and he complained about his parents, mostly his mother. End quote. It was beginning to look like Andrew Barry had wanted to take his girls with him in his bid to die by suicide, possibly just to cause pain to Sarah and his parents in what he thought was going to be his final act. And we'll take a break right here. And we're back. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, what you've heard so far, Matthew? Special place in hell for people who kill children. Correct. Yep. And on top of that, the trying to kill yourself, total bullshit. You I, don't think Andrew meant to follow through with his suicide or? Absolutely not. Okay. He, he's, somebody's just proven that they can stab somebody multiple, multiple times. Yeah. They know how to kill. They should know how to kill themselves. So up to this point, you believe that Andrew Barry is the perpetrator of this crime? Yes. A candlelit vigil for the girls was held at Willows Beach in Oak Bay on Saturday, December 30th at 7 p.m. Thousands of people showed up. Here's some audio from a global TV news report on the event. A sea of light helping guide Oak Bay through some of its darkest days. 
means that the communities holding us in their embrace. Um, I think it's a wonderful reflection of Sarah. The candlelight vigil organized by friends of Sarah Cotton, the mother of six-year-old Chloe and four-year-old Aubrey Berry. The girls found slain Christmas Day in their father's apartment. If we can do nothing else at this point, it's to honor them properly. Chloe was a very caring friend. It seems it runs in the family. There's a big hole in our school now. Little Aubrey remembered for her smile. She brought love and joy and hope and a peaceful presence to our school. Both those girls, I saw, we saw them every morning we went to school and it's it absolutely heartbreaking. Doug Hemp's son went to school with Chloe. He's struggling to explain what happened to young Frank. Just that, that Chloe's gone, she's gone to heaven and she's in a good place and um, just to think happy thoughts. And I just feel so deeply for the mother because it's going to be a long road for her. And we're all here for her if she needs help. Reverend Michelle Slater sharing a message from Chloe and Aubrey's grandparents. We are so grateful that we shared their lives. The crowd 2,000 strong standing together after an unthinkable tragedy. not only the family and friends of Chloe and Aubrey that the community was concerned for. Realizing what a toll such a grisly fine on Christmas Day would have taken on first responders and investigators, a group of Oak Bay residents sent some tasty treats to the Oak Bay Police with thoughtful handwritten note. The Oak Bay Police Department posted a photo of the note on their Twitter account. The note read, quote, Oak Bay Police, the members of Oak Bay Local and the community of Oak Bay want you to know that you are in our thoughts while you continue to do your work under what we imagine are very difficult circumstances. Every day you work hard at keeping our community safe. You are professional, caring, and compassionate. When you came to work on Christmas Day, you likely didn't think you would be faced with the horror you experienced. We as a community stand by you, support you, and most importantly care about you. Please try to remember to care for yourselves and each other. Let us nourish you. Please enjoy the treats. With great empathy and respect, love the Oak Bay community. The tweet, including the police department's response to the note, was telling. It read, quote, Thank you, hashtag Oak Bay, for your support. Just received your thoughtful gesture and are frankly a bit emotionally overwhelmed by it. We are so grateful to serve such an incredibly compassionate and caring community. Can't get into specifics, but the timing of this was absolutely perfect. Andrew's story was not making any sense. There were a lot of red flags. Corporal Shane Rappel, a team commander with the Vancouver Island Integrated Major Crime Unit, later stated that Andrew did not mention his children at all while he was in the hospital recovering from his wounds. According to a report filed by Kevin Menz for the Oak Bay News, quote, while recovering, Andrew pointed to his chest, where he had been wounded, and told his sister, I did this, end quote. Upon his release from hospital, Andrew Robert Douglas Berry, 43, was arrested and charged with second-degree murder in the deaths of his daughters, four-year-old Aubrey Berry and his, her six-year-old sister, Chloe. 
for his first court appearance on January 4, 2018, Barry wore a gray hoodie and stood motionless and stoic as the charges were read, and a second court appearance was put over to February 1st so he could attain counsel. The same day as Anders' first court appearance, the Chloe and Aubrey Barry Scholarship Fund was established in memory of the two little girls at the Victorian Foundation for Scholarships at Christ Church Cathedral School. I'll post a link to the scholarship in the show notes for this episode if you wish to donate. Cops were still gathering evidence. They spent more than a week at the crime scene, Andrew's apartment. They'd also found other evidence outside the crime scene. Police obtained surveillance footage of Andrew and the girls at the Oak Bay Recreation Center and at a Fairway Market on Christmas Eve the day before the murders. From Oak Bay News, quote, One of the videos showed the three in a lobby area near the recreation center skating rink, while another shows the girls playing outside as the three leave the center. The video looked like just little girls being little girls. It was hard to reconcile that less than 24 hours later, they'd be gone. In April 2018, Sarah Cotton, Chloe and Aubrey's mom, made her first statements to the press since the murders of her daughters. In the statement, Sarah spoke about having run the Victoria Half Marathon with her girls only months before their murders. She was running again, this time in memory of the girls and raising funds for a GoFundMe called the, quote, Chloe and Aubrey Memorial Fund. In the first 21 hours of its existence, more than $16,000 had been raised. Before the campaign was closed, $42,950 was donated and divided between the previously mentioned Chloe and Aubrey Berry Scholarship Fund and the Mary Manning Center for Child Abuse Prevention and Counseling. Sarah was set to run in the annual BMO Vancouver Half Marathon. She told the Times Colonist newspaper it was, quote, part of my healing and in honor of my girls, Sarah wrote in her news release, My hope is that through raising money for this important organization, the Mary Manning Center for Child Abuse Prevention and Counseling, wait lists can be reduced and access to counseling is more immediate. She continued, referring to Chloe and Aubrey, There's this place in me where your fingerprints still rest, your kisses still linger and your whispers softly echo. It's the place where part of you will forever be a part of me. End quote. In another story from the Times Colonist on December 22, 2018, only days before the anniversary of the deaths of Chloe and Aubrey, Sarah recalled the joy she felt in singing the song This Little Light of Mine with her daughters. She encouraged others to remember the girls when singing that song. Quote, In looking ahead to Christmas, I wanted to find a way to remember and celebrate Chloe and Aubrey and the joy and love they brought to all of us. People can play the piano, guitar, ukulele, whatever they want. I would much rather focus on the girl's brightness and light rather than the negativity of it all this Christmas, and I hope this will add a little positivity to everyone's Christmas. The community remembered the girls as well with a red ribbon tied around a tree in Willows Park where they had often played. Oak Bay Councilwoman Hazel Braithwaite organized the memorial and told the Times Colonist paper, quote, It will just be an area where people can see the playground, see the beach, and have their thoughts about the girls, and just take a moment and think about the happiness they brought to the world in the short time that they were here, end quote. Andrew Barry pleaded not guilty to the charges that he'd murdered his little girls. After almost a year and a half of pretrial hearings, Andrew Barry's double second-degree murder trial began in April of 2019 with jury selection. As the trial started, the Crown began to make their case. The Crown prosecutor said, quote, 
On Christmas Day 2017, both girls had been brutally murdered. You are here to decide whether it was in fact their father, Andrew Barry, the accused, who killed Chloe and Aubrey. The Crown theory is that evidence will show that Mr. Barry did kill Chloe and Aubrey, then injured himself as a means to die by suicide. The first witness to testify was Oak Bay Police Constable Peter Yulanowski. He told the 14-member jury what he'd seen upon entering Suite 103 from the Times Colonist, quote, The apartment was completely dark. The wall had blood all over it. There were clothes all over the floor. The apartment was in complete disarray. He said that on the bed he could see a body with matted hair that appeared to be red. It was very quiet. Yulanowski called Martin, his partner, by cell phone in case Cotton would hear his radio transmissions. I remember my adrenaline pumping. I wanted to go in, but at the same time I didn't want to go in. I didn't want to believe what I had found, he said. Yulanowski's partner, Martin, arrived and the two officers went into the apartment. Yulanowski had his flashlight out and his hand on his gun. He walked down the hallway and saw a naked man lying in the bathtub with water up to his shoulders. The bathroom was in complete disarray, he testified. There was blood on the toilet and blood on the floor. I yelled, Andrew, Andrew, can you hear me? said Yulanowski. There was a gasp for air. He was breathing slowly. Barry had cuts and lacerations to his left side of his chest, blood around his neck, and his right eye was swollen shut with a golf ball-sized black eye, Yulanowski testified. Paramedics and firefighters arrived soon after, called by Yulanowski and Martin. As they drained the water from the bathtub where Andrew lay bleeding to prep him for transport to the hospital, he had told them, kill me and leave me alone. The jury and members of the public attending the trial had to endure days of graphic testimony about the state of Andrew Berry's apartment and the brutality inflicted upon the two innocent little girls. According to the Times colonist, a BC ambulance paramedic named Haley Blackmore testified that she'd been cooking Christmas dinner at the station when her supervisor told her that there was an unpleasant call that needed paramedics to attend. She went. From the Times colonist, quote, I saw multiple first responders, police, fire, and ambulance, and some equipment as well, Blackmore testified. It seemed like a hallway full of people. I needed to figure out what was going on. Blackmore spoke to an officer standing in front of the door. I asked how many people were inside. He told me three. I asked if they were dead or alive. He said, I think two are dead and one is alive, but you better come check. Blackmore continued testifying that she entered the bedroom with a police officer. The officer was using a flashlight to illuminate the scene as there was no power in the darkened apartment. On the bed, she saw the body of a young girl, and she bent down to attend to her. She said, quote, There was blood on the sheets and blood in her clothing, and she had tangled blonde bloody hair, and she was kind of curled up on the bed facing away from me. I noticed she had stab wounds or lacerations on her body and one on her wrist. I went to touch her and feel for a pulse, and I noticed she was stiff and cold and obviously deceased. Some of the first responders were so disturbed they had to leave the scene to catch their breath. Many had children of their own at home and couldn't help thinking about them, especially at Christmas. More than one first responder suffered post-traumatic stress injuries after dealing with what they had seen in Andrew Berry's apartment. Sergeant Kimberly Tremblay, an RCMP blood spatter expert, testified about the eerie void left behind amid the blood stains. From the Times colonist, quote, 
Tremblay said on the floor by the bed, almost in the middle of all the blood spatters, was a void, an area clear of blood that initially had confused her. She agreed when the Crown put it to her that the spatters were consistent with somebody repeatedly stabbing someone on the bed and sending blood flying. The void was created because drops of blood hit the person doing the stabbing instead of any part of the room. There would be spatter stains on the assailant, Tremblay said, end quote. There was testimony that there were three people's blood on the knife found in the apartment, Chloe's, Aubrey's, and Andrew's. The wounds on all three matched that same knife. As well as the evidence found at the scene and on Andrew himself, there were days of testimony about motive, how Andrew believed that Sarah was, quote, trying to take him down. He'd ranted to many of his friends about how Sarah had kept the children from him, calling her nasty names. Many said that Andrew felt hopeless and powerless to do anything. His frustration had been palpable. In an unusual turn of events, Andrew Barry himself took the stand on August 20th, as his defense team began to make their case. Andrew was now saying that Chinese loan sharks had attacked him and murdered his daughters. He said they were out for blood after Andrew had not repaid a loan for cash he'd gambled away. The loan had quickly gone from the original $10,000 he'd acquired from a mystery man named Paul to $25,000 due to interest, and Andrew told Paul he was unable to pay. He had an elaborate story that sounded like something out of The Sopranos. From the Times colonist, quote, A rock was thrown through a window and two men associated with the loan shark visited him in his home. Twice, Barry was asked to store packages in his apartment that he assumed contained illegal drugs. He was also asked to hand over a spare set of keys to his apartment. This is how Andrew Barry explained away the fact that there had been no forced entry into the suite. A global news report filed after a day of Andrew Berry's testimony gave some details. Here's some audio. What happened Christmas Day 2017? Crown's theory, Andrew Berry tried to commit suicide after killing his children around 8 o'clock in the morning when a key witness said she heard banging and crashing coming from Berry's apartment. The accused says he didn't do it, he was attacked. Aubrey and Chloe woke up that morning excited. They opened their stockings. A fresh blanket of snow had fallen, so Barry said he took the girls tobogganing twice. The second time, Barry told the jury they returned around 3, 3.30 in the afternoon when he says he was attacked. Gesturing at his throat, Barry told the jury, I was tackled onto the bed. My chins reefed up. I was stabbed in the throat. The next thing I know when I come to, I go into Chloe's bedroom and I fell down in the doorway and lose consciousness. I woke up, I crawl over to Chloe's bed, I pull myself up onto my knees, I reach out and touched Chloe, and she's dead, Barry said, crying on the stand. Just blood everywhere, and I think Aubrey at that point, and I get up and go to my room again. She's not there. I move over to the kitchen. My recollection is me grabbing a knife and being thrown to the floor and getting stabbed while I'm trying to get back up again. The next thing Barry remembers is waking up in the bathtub with the police standing over him. Barry said the person who attacked him had dark skin and dark hair, not the Chinese loan sharks he described the other day, who he said he owed $25,000 to. Crown will get a chance to cross-examine Barry on his version of events on Friday. Romina Dea, Global News.
In cross-examination by the Crown Prosecutor, Andrew Berry stuck to his outrageous story and attempted to explain away why he'd not made claims of being attacked while in the hospital. He said that he believed people already thought he was guilty and felt depressed and suicidal. From the Times Colonist, quote, During his stay at the hospital, no one asked him if he killed the girls and no one offered condolences, he said. They treated my injuries, but they treated me like I had just killed two little girls. I just wanted to die. End quote. After a grueling trial, the case finally went to the jury on September 24, 2019. Two days later, they came back with a verdict. Andrew Berry was found guilty on both counts of second-degree murder and the deaths of Chloe and Aubrey. Sarah Cotton told reporters outside the courtroom that she was relieved with the outcome. At pre-sentencing hearings in December, Sarah Cotton gave her victim impact statement expressing her feelings eloquently about the murders of her two little girls. Here's a bit of what she said from a global news report filed that day. Through tears, the girl's mom, Sarah Cotton, shared how she's been anxious and unable to sleep since her girls were murdered. Friends, family and politicians filled the courtroom so full, two overflow rooms were opened. Cotton was the first to speak about being mom to six-year-old Chloe and four-year-old Aubrey. I was honored to be their mother. That's all I ever wanted to be. Our house hummed with energy, giggles, fast little footsteps, and sometimes tears. There was so much life and joy in our house, and now it has all gone silent. I dread the day I have to begin attending multiple parole hearings. The pain, trauma, and psychological harm will only continue if this has to be revisited every few years. Sentencing for Andrew Berry came on December 19th, six days before the second anniversary of the murders. Andrew was given two mandatory life sentences for the murders and was told that he would not be eligible for parole for 22 years. Sarah spoke again from a Global News article filed that day. Quote, Chloe and Aubrey's mother, Sarah Cotton, issued a statement saying that no length of sentence would be long enough for Barry's crimes, but she supported the judge's decision. Chloe and Aubrey lost their lives in the most brutal way at the hands of their father. I have lost a life that I loved and knew, and I do not believe that Andrew, who has shown no remorse and a complete disregard for the lives of our daughters, should ever get a second chance, said Cotton. Cotton went on to thank police and prosecutors for their efforts but slammed BC's Ministry of Children and Family Development, who she said, quote, failed us leading up to the girls' deaths. I did everything in my power to keep my children safe, she said. However, my concerns made to the MCFD about my children's well-being in their father's care and Andrew's mental health fell on deaf ears. I can only hope that changes will be made throughout the family law system so that tragedies such as ours do not happen again. Just this past March, Sarah Cotton was in the news again, this time praising changes to the divorce laws. These changes place more emphasis on the needs of children during divorce and as a result aim to minimize legal battles between parents over custody orders, like those in the case between Andrew and Sarah over Aubrey and Chloe. From Global News, quote, There's now a definition of all types of family violence written into national legislation which has never been included before, Sarah said in an interview. I think the judges will be paying closer attention to these kinds of things when looking at making decisions. Sarah said she believes the amended Divorce Act has the potential to protect more children from family violence. 
I think for the judges to make an informed decision in these family law cases, they need a thorough understanding of family violence and the issues at play, she said. The awareness is key. I really hope that these judges will take into account and recognize all signs of abuse. So this is one of those cases that I'm not sure I will ever forget. And I remember hearing about it on the news hours after it happened and recall feeling sick to my stomach on learning the ages of those little girls. Are there any cases that stand out like this one in your mind, Matthew, that will always kind of, you'll always remember? Um, can I say something? Yeah. You invited me to co-host. You're yeah. like, come co-host with me. It'll be fun, you said, right? right? yeah. What I didn't realize is that when you do research mm-hmm. and dig into these stories, you, yeah. s- you start understanding, you start feeling for the people. Yep. And it's actually not easy. No, it is not. And this one was like, I actually welled up yesterday sort of yep. doing the research on this because it's not like you're just passively hearing about it on the news. Right. Right. You're sort of looking into it and it, it's hard sometimes. Yeah, it totally is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, any time like uh, children are being hurt, like to me, that's, those are the difficult stories, right? Because innocence, mm-hmm. right? Like yep. there's, there's, there's just no you know, you can maybe argue away sort of crimes of passion, blah, blah, blah. When it, but when it comes to kids, like it's, right. they're, they're hard. They're yeah. really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Any, any of the crimes that I've covered, any of the murders involving children, I find specifically difficult. Yeah. And I know everybody else who has co-hosted has said the same things that they found it particularly difficult. And that's why I don't cover crime after crime after crime with children because yeah. they are, Horrendous. Yeah. Um, Mindy Tran, the nine-year-old who yeah. was murdered um, in the interior, like when we covered that, that really hit me hard. There are a few that really stand out in my memory. Um, and I don't know how much you follow crime in your day-to-day life, but are, are there any, you know, crimes that stand out to you somehow or any that you would like to have us cover maybe or... Yeah, there's one that I'd like you to cover. What's that? There was a case where somebody murdered his wife on a highway in Ontario mm-hmm. and tried to pretend that they pulled over to help somebody. Oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, it sort of captured the, it was in the 80s. I sort of, I can remember that story and everyone watching the news all the time. Well, let's look into it and yeah. maybe we'll cover that one. Yeah. All right. Um Anything else you want to say on this particular case before we wrap it up? The guy had a gambling addiction. Yes. Right? Um, And I've known people who have had gambling addictions. Yes. But I just find it amazing sort of the level of narcissism of, you know, even immediately after blaming the Mm ex-wife, blaming the dark-skinned man, blaming loan sharks. Yeah. Right? Just blame, 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 blame. Lots of blame. Total narcissism, right? Yeah. And he uh, was also upset that his sister wouldn't hug him yeah. in, in the hospital. He, and he, on, Like you, you just, you've run into a few narcissists in your life. Yes. So I, have I. Yes. And I'm just like, yo, you're such a dick, man. Right? Like. Yep. Like, okay, you have a massive gambling addiction. Your electricity's cut off. Mm-hmm. You quit your job. You blew all your money. Yeah. And you're complaining that your ex-wife sort of is trying to bring you down. You brought yourself down, dude, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
Fair enough. And that's it for this case, Dark Poutine episode 169, Worst Case Scenario, The Murders of Chloe and Aubrey Berry. Now on to voicemails. You can leave us one at one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. If your call stands out, you might hear it on the show. Mmm. Mmm. Oh, my back is sore. I've had such bad sciatica. I'm such an old man now. <laughs> Don't forget your Zimmer frame. What, what is a Zimmer frame? A walker. Oh, is that a UK thing? They're or? called Zimmer frames. <laughs> what the heck? Zimmer frame. Oh, I got, oy, I got kicked right in the Zimmer frame. <laughs> <laughs> my Zimmer frame's really acting up. I can fault my Zimmer frame. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I'm going to hell. I think I've, I've decided that that's where I'm going. No, you're not. <laughs> uh, here is a message from somebody. Let's hear it. <laughs> I think her name is Ashley. Hey, Mike, and insert host, co-host of the week. Um, my name's Ashley, and I'm calling from beautiful Belleville, Ontario. Um, I actually came from BC, and I used to work for a large telecommunications company out there as well. Um, I just wanted to call and say thank you so much for all that you're doing. Um, I enjoy listening to your podcast every week while I push paper and do the work that needs to be done. Um, so again, thank you for all you do. And uh, I can only say this in the most Canadian way, but go take a dookie in your kooky. <laughs> wow. Thank you, Ashley. That is kind of nice uh, to be told to go take a dookie in my tookie. That, that's actually pretty good. I put, like. a, put a duke in your tookie. Yeah, exactly. A duke in my tookie. Uh, but yeah, that large telecommunications company that the one that I worked for is the one that just got bought. So anyway. Okay. Yeah. Here's somebody who's calling from the Badlands of Alberta in Drumheller. Drumheller. Hey, I am calling from Drumheller, Alberta. My name is Mary and I actually used to live really nearby the house where the Brentwood Five murders took place and I love hearing about it on podcasts and I love the respect that you guys have for the victims. I even went to the same college at the same time as uh, one of the victims. But I just wanted to let you know that my parents still live nearby and I see the house sometimes and I'm happy to report that it's being treated with tons of respect. It's getting a few renovations and uh, despite the terrible things that happened there, I think the house is going to be, you know, respected and taken care of. Go shit in a hat. All the best, Mary. Well, thanks, Mary. Not just, not your hat, but a hat. A hat. <laughs> Go find your neighbor's hat and shit in it. Well, there's a few neighbors who I'd like to shit in their hats that we've had over the years. Not so much here, but uh, in other places that we've lived. Mm. Yeah, not good. Um, here's one from Nova Scotia. Well, the island that sits at the top of Nova Scotia. Hey, Mike. My name is Michelle. I'm calling from a town in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, Nawadaport, Nova Scotia in Cape Breton. And I was calling, um, first of all, I love your podcast. I look forward to it coming out. And just wondering if you ever heard of the Clayton Miller case. Clayton Miller was 
a kid that was died when he was 17 years old and the cops were blamed for years for um, having something to do with his death. His father still walks around our town, <clears throat> excuse me, with a sign on his shoulder um, saying that the cops killed his son, blah, blah, blah. Um, lots of controversy about it. I was just kind of curious if you ever heard of it or maybe you just want to stay away from it and not have, want to have anything to do with it because it is such a controversial case. Um, but anyway, just kind of curious. And have a good day and go shit in your hat. Wow. Thanks, Michelle. Uh, yes, I have heard of the Clayton Miller case. I have it researched. I have it queued up and ready to go at some point this year, but I have actually been avoiding it because it is really controversial. So I want to be able to treat it in a way that uh, is respectful to everybody who's involved. So it's an interesting case and it's very, there's a lot of detail that's available um, about it. So, yep, I'm going to cover it. Well, that's, uh, thanks Michelle for that little push that Mike needed. Yeah, yeah push me over the... Over the edge. Well, hopefully not over the edge. <laughs> I don't need to go over any edges. No. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, we get we get a number of voicemails every week. It's nice to hear some from back home. I really enjoy hearing Nova Scotians' voices. We did get one from uh, someone who had uh, another case suggestion that went into some detail, and he suggested perhaps not play it on the air, so we won't. But I probably will reach out to you, Jeff, about the case that you were talking about, because I'm curious now. Yeah, so am I. We, we just listened to that message. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did, we do, like I say, we listen to all the messages, but uh, not every the, not every one of them gets played, uh, even though, you know. Anyway, I don't know why I'm going on that way. I'm just going to edit okay. all that out. Um. Yeah, so that's it for voicemails. Uh, you can leave us one at one eight seven seven. 3275786 or 1877DARKPTN. So now it is on to Patreon and PayPal. Patreon. Patreon is we're struggling a little. We we're, need we need more Patreons. <laughs> Patreon. We are struggling a little. Um please please do Patreon. I don't want Mike to think it's because I joined. Yeah. That less Patreons happening. So just a little bit of insight and you can see it on, on our, uh, Patreon page over the last three months, a thousand dollars worth of Patreon money has evaporated. People have left for one reason or another. A lot of people are saying their financial circumstances have changed. Which and, is fair. Which is fair. And, and so has mine <laughs> now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it is what it is. If you can't support the show in that way. Just keep supporting it by downloading it and telling your friends. We Absolutely. really appreciate yeah. any kind of support that you can give. Um, and as far as patron goes, we have one this week, and that is Tracy Hatcher. And she is from Lenoir, North Carolina. Lenoir. Lenoir. What does Tracy do? I got all excited because in... Lenoir has an uh, Edgar Allan Poe house. Really? But it's not the author. What? I know. Is there another Edgar Allan Poe? Yeah, some dude that was obviously important in Lenoir. So her job is standing in front of Edward Allan Poe's house, turning away tourists that think it's the author's. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that, that's an interesting job. That's an important job. I know. She, you know, she doesn't want to be a party to people being disappointed. I yeah, guess. she sends them to uh, 
Fayetteville, North Carolina. Fayetteville. I think that's where he's from. Well, he's from somewhere. That poor, <laughs> that poor guy. He's actually one of my favorite authors of all time, Edgar Allan Poe. And if you ever get a chance to read his story, Hop Frog, check it out. Okay. Yeah, there's, it's a, one of his lesser known stories, but it's called Hop Frog. And I really related to Hop Frog when I was a little boy. I can remember, did he write The Telltale Heart? Yes. I read that as a little kid and it scared the shit out of me. Totally scary. Have you seen that movie uh, where somebody is killing people off um, uh, to the theme of Edgar Allan Poe's books? And What's what's the movie called? John Cusack's in it. Oh, well, yeah. I I love the Cusack family. (laughs) Yeah, Joan is especially fun. Joan's fantastic. Yeah. Have you seen all the graffiti around town? No. Somebody spray paints everywhere, Joan Cusack. <laughs> That's kind of funny. It was John Cusack, but I guess he said in an interview once he sh- they should change it to my sister. So the, the guy tagging all the buildings changed it to Joan Cusack. Joan Cusack. <laughs> well, that's very nice. I know. I love Joan Cusack. Yeah. So there you go. That is it for a Patreon this week. Thanks to all our patrons, donut money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. Uh, you can become a patron at Dark Poutine. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash dark poutine. Or for a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot to us if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on iTunes, Podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever else you get your on-demand audio. What the heck is you wrong with You finally got it out. What's wrong with my tongue today? Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. Please take the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook or Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until next time. Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. showcase they call me the christchurch carver based on the international bestseller this trademark souvenir can't stop thinking about the apple usually he eats it i've got a copycat on my hands i know who you are joe i know what you do you have two days to find a copycat this is way harder to make sense of when you didn't do it dark city the cleaner all new wednesdays on showcase stream on stack tv